Well, it is an exciting time to worship together and to take communion together and to remind ourselves that we are one church. We're one church in many locations. For those of us here in the chapel, those watching out in the tent and online, it's a reminder that we all rest in the grace of God. And I love that last song, the reckless love of God that he chases after us and chases after us. And he is faithful, even when we are faithless. And as we dig into his grace today, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, and we're taking on what I mentioned last week, which is the hardest passage in the Bible it's considered. And you're going to find out why maybe in just a second. Why is this passage considered the most difficult passage in the whole Bible? Because it brings up all kinds of questions. You remember where we were last week in the beginning of chapter 6? He says to these Christians, I want you to move from milk to meat. And right out of that conversation about moving from the elementary things to the meaty things, he launches into Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And we're just going to look at that little chunk and figure out why this is considered the most difficult passage in the Bible. The writer says this, for it is impossible. That's a big word. For those who were, right, who's the those? Those who were once enlightened, those who were and have tasted the heavenly gift, those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God and have tasted the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Well, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This passage just is riddled with questions. How can something be impossible for God? Who are these people? Are we talking about real Christians or fake Christians? If they are real Christians, what does it mean to fall away? I don't want to fall away. Is there an unforgivable sin? Did I do it? Is it maybe lots of sins, but you do it for too long? How long is too long? How many times do you break a promise? How many times do you fall back into an old habit before you fall away? And it's not just bad enough you fall away. Apparently, whatever this is, is so bad that when you fall away, it's impossible to come back. You can't even be renewed again. You can't come back again. Why? <laughs> because you'd be crucifying Christ all over again and putting him in open shame. Do you feel the tension? What in the world does this mean? And how is this even consistent with the rest of Scripture? And how do I make sure I don't do that? And how do I make sure I'm not one of these people who do that? And, and what does it say about God that people are beyond his reach? So we're going to try and unpack that today. And to do that... I want to come back to the theme in the previous part of the verse because I think it's going to help play out in this. Remember I said in the previous part of the passage, the goal of these people is just to get to heaven? And he says it's time to move on from the elementary things to get on to the, the teaching things, the deeper things, the bigger things. The same thing is true here. The goal of Christ is not to get you to heaven, but to get heaven into you. 
as Christians, we're often like, what's the least I need to do to get to heaven? Am I in? Am I out? Did I lose it? Did I not? And so it's all about just getting to heaven. But the scripture knows very little of that. The goal is never just get you into heaven. The goal is to get heaven into you. How do you fully experience the full power of the gospel in your life, the full manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life? So the goal of scripture is always about how to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. And the words of Hebrews, to become a teachers of the things that you've already learned. To grow, to milk, onward to meet. So I think what's going to make this passage more helpful is to understand the goal here is not just getting you to heaven, but to getting heaven fully invested in you. Now, as you read a passage like this, this passage has been debated for thousands of years. So what's the chances we're going to solve it today? 100%. Yeah. No. So I'm going to share my view with you today, and I, I did my master's thesis on this particular passage, so uh, I feel pretty strongly about my view, but we also come with a lot of humility that there are a lot of smart people all through history who have disagreed on this passage. I'm going to give you the major th- views, but my real goal is whatever the correct interpretation is, the Bible wants to offer you not insecurity, but security. And insecurity comes when it's all about me. Hey, if I do something or don't do something, I'm going to fall away, and I don't know if I'm really getting to heaven, and I don't know if I can grow because, you know, I might do the wrong thing, and the last minute I might fall, and I might stumble and lose my ticket to heaven. I don't want you to live with that kind of insecurity. Fear, wishful thinking, maybe I'm out of God's reach. I want you to live with the, the security of the gospel That because of what God did for you and what Christ did for you and his sacrifice for you, you can know for sure you're secure in Christ. And that becomes the motivation for godly living, the motivation to get all of heaven into you on this earth. All right, so that's our goal. So start with insecurity. Insecurity comes when you focus on me getting to heaven, when it's about what I do. And that's what the Hebrews have been struggling with right? If I don't keep certain levels of Torah, if I don't do Jesus plus aspects of the law, if I don't follow this and this and this, then how can you ever know you're getting to heaven? Because it's all up to you. It's about me, my works, getting me into heaven. And our writer's been saying for six chapters, it's not about what you do for God, it's about what God did for you. That's the gospel. All right? So there's three views on this passage. View number one, is it couldn't really happen. This is, whole thing is a hypothetical situation. Hypothetically, this couldn't really happen, but if a Christian really could fall away, then it would be impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's the first view. So the, the writer's just simply giving us a hypothetical. So, it's impossible for those real Christians who've tasted and been enlightened and partakers and tasted, if they could fall away, but we all know they can't, It would be impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, the problem with this view, as we've been teaching Bible study techniques, is you often want to look at the context. Like, was there anything before this verse or after this verse that suggests it's hypothetical? The Bible has lots of ways to set up hypothetical situations. The book of James in chapter 2 says, For someone will say to you, hypothetically, somebody says to it, an imaginary person, show me your faith by your works, but I will show you, blah, 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 blah. Then he rebuttals it by saying, who do you think? Or, oh, foolish Galatians. Paul will do this in his letters. He'll actually quote their letter. As to what you wrote, it's not good for a man to touch a woman, 
but I say to you. So there are lots of ways the Bible can talk about a hypothetical situation or a, uh, a rebuttal argument. We don't see any of that in the prior verses. We don't see any of that in the final verses. So the hypothetical view, or this couldn't really happen, but, you know, I just don't see a lot of contextual support for. All right, well, Chad, that didn't help. Well, you've got to eliminate some views sometimes before you move closer. The strongest view, and this is the view probably held by most Christians, and it's for Christian scholars, is this, these, this is the view that uh, these are not really Christians. So this is held by many in Dallas Theological Seminary. John MacArthur holds this view. This is probably the primary Christian view. Here's how this verse interpretation goes. It is impossible for those... Now, who are the those? Well, it's going to give us several things. Those who were enlightened. They didn't fully see the light of the gospel. They just got a little bit of the light. So they just got enough of it to inoculate themselves to the truth of it. It's impossible for people who just got a little bit of light. It goes on. And those who have tasted the heavenly gift. They didn't swallow it. They didn't fully partake it. They didn't digest it. They didn't fully take it into themselves. They just, they just took a little taste. And it's kind of like if you ever had bad Brussels sprouts. I mean, I think all Brussels sprouts are bad. But like maybe, maybe your grandmother made really good Brussels sprouts. And you're like, you, you turn to your spouse. You got to try some Brussels sprouts. And they're like, no, no, I had that years ago. And you're like, no, you had bad ones. But because they tasted bad ones, they inoculate themselves to try the good ones. And so these fake Christians are not really Christians. They tasted just enough of religion, just enough of Jesus, that they didn't fully take into themselves, that now it's impossible to renew them. They, they've, they've inoculated themselves to even want to try it again. And it's not impossible for God, by the way. It's impossible for them to come back again because they've inoculated themselves to the gospel. Well, then he says, and those who become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't become possessed by the Holy Spirit. They just got a little bit around or near the Holy Spirit to just partake a little bit of it. And so we're not talking about real Christians here, just partakers of the Holy Spirit. And again, that same word tasted, uh, he shows that up again. And they have tasted the good word of God, but they didn't fully take it in. And they tasted the powers of the age to come. So in this view, if they people who aren't really Christians, but who tasted a little bit of it, when they fall away, they have so inoculated themselves to thinking that they tried Christ, it's going to be impossible for them, not God, but impossible for them to come back again because they're going to put Christ to open shame. All right, so that's the second view. Now, I don't take this view for a couple of reasons. So again, kind of Bible study technique you want to do is you want to use the clear passages to interpret the unclear ones. And whenever you have words like enlightened, tasted, partakers, you want to ask yourself, the Greek word used for these words, did the same writer of Hebrews use the same words anywhere else in that letter? And he did. And so if we look at the same words used here, can it help bring some meaning here to whether or not these are real Christians or, you know, fake Christians? Well, sure enough, he did. So let's start with the word enlightened. If you look in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 6, where we're at, the word he uses for enlightened, he uses again in Hebrews chapter 10. And the word is photizo. And here when he says photizo, same word used in this passage in chapter 10, and look how he uses it. Let us, the writer includes himself, hold fast the confession of our faith. Okay? 
He's talking about having faith. He includes himself in the audience. But recall the former days in which, after you were enlightened, or illuminated rather, fotizo, you endured a great struggle. Seems very clear here, us, our, he's referring to these as real Christians, people who've been illuminated or enlightened, same Greek word used in both passages, seems to imply he's talking about real Christians. All right, well, what about the word tasted? Does the writer use the word tasted anywhere else in the book of Hebrews? He does. This one's even more problematic. Here's why. The word for tasted, guerma, which for you Greek scholars, I'm sure I pronounced it wrong, guerma, is used in Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, the writer says, who by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Jesus didn't just take a little crumb of death and not swallow it. He fully partook of death. So the writer of Hebrews is already using the word taste, same word here, as to fully take in. Jesus fully tasted of death for you and I. So if that's the meaning of this word, then we come here and he's saying, for those who have fully tasted, fully partook of the heavenly gift the way Jesus tasted of death, and back here applies as well, and they fully tasted or partake of the good work of God, and they fully tasted of the powers of the age to come. Let's do one more word. What about this word partakers, the theory that you've partaken of the Holy Spirit but not possessed by the Holy Spirit? Well, again, the writer uses this word in another passage in Hebrews, and it's uh, metakos. And here's the context. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren. That's pretty clear. He's talking about real Christians. You're holy because of what Christ did, and you're brothers in Christ. Partakers, same word, of the heavenly calling. I want you to grow. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, just based on Bible study tools, I would say my view is these are definitely real Christians because the words he used are clearly used by the same author in the same book to talk about real Christians. Well, then, Chad, what does it mean? Mm, we're not there yet. So, so for those who are real Christians, when they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they crucify again for themselves. And notice the word again. Why would you use the word again twice if you weren't talking about real Christians? Because they'd have to do it again. They'd have to crucify them again. So even the word again used twice here and in the previous verses we looked at last week seemed to imply it's something you'd have to do again because you're really Christian. So did they lose it and they need to get it again? Hmm. That's the question. So while I leave that hanging, let's go to the third view. So the third view is, it says what it says. Real Christians, when you fall away, there's no way back. You can't really come back again. And when you read that, there's just something immediately goes, that can't be right. When you read the whole Bible, I mean, if anything the, the gospel tells us is that God just keeps going after rebellious people and he keeps going after rebellious people, I, that just seems inconsistent with everything else the Bible says, right? Let me give you two specific examples. In the New Testament, of people who fell away big time and they did come back. One is the Apostle Peter. Now, we know Peter made a lot of mistakes when he was first being called by Jesus. 
But I'm talking about post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. So, Jesus appeared to Peter, resurrected body, Jesus goes back, uh, Peter goes back to his old way of living. Jesus appears to him a second time, he goes back to his old way of living. Jesus appears to him a third time in John 21, he goes back to his old way of living. Then, he's restored by Jesus. All right, that's pretty good. Then he preaches at Pentecost. All right, that's pretty good. Big sermon, thousands of people come to Christ. And then we get to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, where Peter becomes an apostate and begins preaching and practicing a totally different gospel. So much so that Paul has to confront him to his face because he has decided that Jews are somehow more acceptable because they keep the law than Gentiles are. He disassociates from the Gentiles and begins to preach another gospel. So Paul says in Galatians 2, I had to confront Peter to his face because he had become a hypocrite to the gospel. Well, that certainly was a falling away after all that revelation. And yet, Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter after this and became a leader in the church. So, the third view just seems inconsistent with what we know about God's presence. And it seems inconsistent with like what happened with Peter. Here's another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5. Paul's describing the worst the worst sinner he knows in the church at Corinth. He says, guys, there are people who are followers of Jesus who are so engaged in sin, it's worse sin than even the Gentiles practice. He puts it in like this category of categories. One of you is sleeping with your either mother or mother-in-law, depending on how the Greek works. And here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. This is like the worst thing he can think of. And yet, look what he says. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. So he seems to imply that whoever this worst person is who's doing the worst things, worse than even Gentiles do, is still going to be saved in the last day even though they're going to die physically. That doesn't seem like somebody who's not getting to heaven. So let me tell you a story. I have a friend who's a, a pastor. And he grew up in a church that, very Bible-centered, very Jesus-focused. But they kind of had an additional rule. And the additional rule is any Christians who drink alcohol are, are you know, it's the worst possible sin. That was the, kind of the, the aspect of the law. Do not be drunk. They had it not just drunk, but you can touch alcohol, blah, blah, blah. Well, he'd been a Christian for many, many years, and he hadn't drank any alcohol in many, many years. But he went through a time of incredible stress. And under that stress and under that pressure, just one time, as he's driving home one day, he's like, man, I've got to have a drink. I haven't had a drink in 15 years. So he went and he got a drink. And he's driving home, and sure enough, he's not drunk, but he has alcohol in his system. He hasn't had in 15 years. He gets pulled over by the police. And he's panicked because he's a pastor and a denomination that if you drink at all, you are disqualified for the rest of your life for ministry. So the police officer asked him if he's been drinking. Yes. Can I do a sobriety test? And he remembered somebody somewhere in the past telling him, you know, don't do that because blah, blah, blah. So no. And he said, panics. So he gets a ticket for whatever he was doing, speeding, whatever. And then the police officer makes a report that he refused the alcohol test. Well, this is a very small town, and all of a sudden it's all over the town that he's in the newspaper that he got pulled over and that he'd refused the, the, the sobriety test. 
and he gets called from all the different pastors and all the different people in his denomination and just berating him that he's not qualified for ministry and he needs to quit and this is over and he calls me up. Chad, am I done? Am I out of ministry? Am I disqualified because I had this drink? And I began to talk to him about the fact the Bible says do not be drunk, but it doesn't necessarily say don't drink alcohol. And, and they've kind of added to the gospel there. And then two, hey, listen, we all struggle. And, then, and sometimes people even who want to do the right thing end up back in drunkenness. And, you know, God, God works with you and God helps you. And that isn't even the case here. And we just begin to describe that. And he's like, no, 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 I think once you make a mistake, you're done. And I talked about David and his sins and came back. That's Old Testament. I gave example after example of the Bible of people who fell away and came back again. Moses, you know, lied and, and Moses murdered somebody and and David, you know, committed adultery. No, that's all Old Testament. This guy was, knows too much of the Bible, right? The only example that helped him was the example I just gave of Peter. Because it was post-Jesus, post-Pentecost, of a Christian who fell away in a serious way and was restored to ministry. And he began, began to find the power of the gospel again, knowing that God could restore him. So, if that's the heart of the Bible, that God does let us be renewed, then what in the world can this passage mean? Now, everything I just described has a lot of insecurity, right? It, if we really can fall away and not be renewed, that puts a lot of insecurity in us. If it's hypothetically, well then how do I know if I'm hypothetically a Christian, not hypothetically, a lot of insecurity. So I want to show you my view of this passage, which is none of those three views, and why I think it actually puts incredible security in you that will then motivate you to grow. So even if my interpretation is wrong, the goal of this passage is clear. You want to be so secure in Christ that it motivates you to grow, to move on to the deeper things. All right, so let's look at security, and I'll try and untangle this passage together. Here we go. So security is produced... Now when I focus on me getting to heaven, what I do to fall away, what I don't do to fall away, security is produced when I focus on getting heaven into me. I am so confident that I'm getting to heaven because of what Christ did. I now want more and more of heaven getting into me, his control, his surrender, his fruit in my life. All right, let's unpack this passage together. Let's go back to the previous context. The previous context, his point was clear. Immature Christians, real Christians, need to move on to maturity. Therefore, he said, leaving the discussion of elementary things of Christ, let's go on, let's move on to perfection, move on to maturity, not laying again, there's the word again, let's not go back to whether or not you're really getting to heaven. You keep going back to, am I really getting to heaven? Am I really getting to heaven? Am I really going to get to heaven? Let's move on from that. It's not about whether you're getting to heaven. It's about whether or not you're living and getting heaven into you. So coming out of verse 3, he then says, immature Christians don't need to get into heaven again. Guys, it would be impossible for those who are enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You don't need to become a Christian again. You'd, you'd have to crucify Christ all over again. You're already a Christian. Let's move on. I'll come back to that. Then out of that verse, the following context says this. Immature Christians need to get heaven into yourself more. For the earth drinks in the rain which comes upon it and bears herbs. It bears fruit. 
useful for those of whom it is cultivated. It receives the blessings from heaven into its life fully, and it bears, but, sorry, it, it receives it, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. And now we see the problem. If he says burned, if he says cursed, he can't be talking about real Christians. So Chad, I don't know what you think, but I'm coming back to the view of I'm not sure this is real Christians because real Christians couldn't be burned, it couldn't be cursed. Well, let me first encourage you not to read the word hell into the word fire and burned. Every time a Christian sees the word fire or burn, they're like, must be talking about hell. Nowhere in the context has he talked about hell. Is there any, and it's a serious challenge here, is there any other place in the Bible that the word burned is used of Christians that would apply here? And there is. Last week I mentioned the Bema Seat of Christ. One of the passages for the Bema Seat that's very, very clear is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Talking to Christians. Now if anyone, as a Christian, builds on the foundation of Christ and His grace with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one, Christian's work, will become clear. For the day of Christ will reveal it because it will be revealed by, ah, oh, fire. And the fire that Christians experience at the Bema Seat will test each person's work to see what kind of work it was. If anyone's work, which he built on it, the grace of God, endures, he will receive a reward. It's the good news. You get rewards for all the things you've done. God, you got me into heaven, and then I just surrendered and let heaven flow through me, and the good work that came out of me, God rewards you for the work he does in you. Amazing. However, if you become a Christian, and you don't live for Christ and you're producing thorns and briars, that stuff when you stand before God is going to be burned up. Man, why didn't you use the time and the talents I gave you for greater things than just yourself? He says, if anyone, Christian, anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, loss of future rewards. Now, he himself will be saved. We're not talking about getting to heaven here, but we are talking about future rewards, and you, you've, you will suffer loss through fire. Same metaphors, burn, fire. So if you don't understand the doctrine of the Bema Seat, that as Christians we stand before God, and he says, hey, I got you into heaven based on what I did, but did you then take that grace and allow it to motivate you to grow and to serve others and to, and to live out the kingdom I talked about? God's going to take every good thing you've done, and whatever is done out of self burns up on that day, and whatever is left that was done for Christ, you get rewarded for. Now maybe you've never heard teaching on the doctrine of the bima several of you mentioned last week it's the first time you've ever heard it before so a little way to down get a little download on that so if you go to our app horizon space cc in your google store or apple store if you go to the main page you can click on uh, current messages or past messages if you click on past messages you will see in the in the top right corner is a little magnifying glass where you can search if you type in b-e-m-a the bima it will pull up every message we've done for the last 18 years on the Bema. And my favorite one was a couple years ago in 2016, God's Reward Banquet that we did. Where I differentiate between the Great White Throne Judgment and the Bema Seat. There's another one we did like 15 years ago out of 1 Corinthians and Counterculture. Another series that we did called Futures at the Exploring Service. Another one we did called Graduating at the Head of God's Class, where I take every single passage on the Bema and extrapolate it. 
So if this is something you'd like to really understand, both for the reward side and the, man, i got to steward my life for the, for, the, for the fire side. I don't want stuff burned up that we're done from my own motivation. It's a great way to dig into that. Back to our passage. So, with all that in mind, Chad, what do you think this means? Here's what I think it means. On the left side is what the Bible says. On the right side, then, is how I'm going to pull together my interpretation. Leaving the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to perfection. He's saying, Christians, go from getting into heaven, faith, into getting heaven into me, maturity. That's what I want for you. For it is impossible, he says, to mature, you don't need Christ to die for you all over again. You don't need to ask Christ into your heart again. That would be impossible to get Christ in your heart again. He's already there. For those who were once enlightened and tasted and partakers, guys, real Christians do fall away. The Corinthians is filled with people who fell away in the book of Corinthians. But it's impossible when real Christians fall away to renew them again to repentance. That would be impossible because they're already Christians. You'd have to crucify Christ all over again. You're already Christians. You're already secure in what he did for you. You don't need to re-invite Christ into your life. You already got him. You need to move on. You don't need to be renewed to repentance or get into heaven again since that would mean crucifying Christ all over again. So here's what I believe he's saying. I think this is a verse about how secure we are in Christ. It's impossible for real Christians, when you fall away, to need to ask Jesus into their heart again because you've already got him. That would be crucifying Jesus all over again, putting him to open shame. You need to realize you got it. You have Jesus. You are already getting to heaven. Let's move on from that. And take the fact that you are secure in him because you don't need to crucify him all over again and let that motivate you to want to serve him. You see, what does it look like for heaven to saturate all aspects of my life? You are so secure in Christ because of what he did for you, not what you did for him, that it now motivates you to want to please him and to want to love him. There's a little sentence I use to help remember the security we have in the Bible through Christ. The sentence I remember is, the power of love will promise grace. The power of God, John 10. When, when you become a Christian, Jesus says in John 10, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing. And so unless you're more powerful than God, unless your sins are more powerful than God, nothing can snatch you out of his hand, the power of God, the love of God. Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor principality nor power nor things of the past or things of the future, not even any other created thing can separate you from the love of Christ when you're in Christ Jesus. Well, you're a created thing. You can't even separate yourself from Christ once you're in Christ because you're in the depth of the love of God. The will of God, John 6, or, yeah, John 6. Jesus says, I have come to do the will of my Father. And the will of my Father is this, that I would raise up all that he's given to me in that day and that I would lose nothing. Did you know Jesus' ability to do the will of God is based on his ability to not lose you once he has you? If Jesus could lose you, he would no longer be doing the will of God, according to John 6, and he'd no longer be qualified to be our sacrifice because he's no longer doing God's will. That's pretty strong. 
The promise of, John, of God, 1 John 5, 11 to 13, these things have I written to you that you may know you have eternal life. If you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. But these things I write to you that you might know you have eternal life. If you can lose it, you don't know you have it. You hope you have it. You wish you have it. Maybe I got it. But you can know you're going to heaven. And once you know you're going to heaven, then even when you fall away, you don't have to come back and say, oh, I got I to gotta repent again. I got to get Jesus in my life again. No, you don't need to crucify him again. He's already with you. He's already got you. Instead, let that start flowing through you in obedience, start flowing through you in, in, in wanting to please him in everything you do. And then, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you have been saved. Not works. It's a gift of God, so no one should boast. It wasn't by works you got into heaven. It's not by works that you get out of heaven. To which the counter argument is with Chad, well, what if I tell Jesus I don't believe in him anymore? Haven't we all had kids at different ages who threw a fit and said, I don't love you anymore. I hate you. I wish I wasn't part of this family. Right? And what did you do as a parent that day? Oh, my goodness. I don't have a son anymore. Oh, my goodness. My daughter's throwing her, her a fit. Oh, and she says she hates me. I guess she's not my daughter anymore. No. You just know that people have bad days and people say dumb things and people have bad feelings. I was sitting in the hot tub with my kids when we were young talking about the security we have in God's grace. And I turned to Javen and Sierra. I said, grab my hand. They're holding each other in the hot tub. I said, all right, who's holding who? And they said, well, I'm holding you and you're holding me. I said, all right, you try and let go. You let go of me. And we were having this all fight in the hot tub. And I said, you may let go of me, but I am not letting go of you. And you say, what if I tell God I don't want to be a Christian anymore? God doesn't answer prayers that aren't according to his will you are so secure that he has you that even when you fall away it's impossible to renew you again to salvation because you've already got that you've already got it now you just need to start living it out god all right man live through me teach me i was talking to a friend recently he's got a 30 year old who's kind of grew up as a christian got baptized, and now has decided he doesn't believe in Jesus and doesn't believe in God. And, and he felt all the pressure to give his, his son the books and read the books and to talk about the books and, you know, counter-argument, counter-argument. He finally sat down with his son. He said, son, here's what I know. I was there when you made a profession of faith. I was there when you were baptized and said you love Jesus. And I'm willing to talk about this anytime you want, but even though you've given up on God, I know God hasn't given up on you. And his son smiled and said, well, I that does sound like what we talked about, doesn't it, Dad? And he's resting in the security of the Holy Spirit's ability to hold his son rather than his anxiety of trying to get his son back again. So, with that in mind, he gets to his final application, which is what? If the goal of Christ is not just to get you to heaven, but get heaven into you, it would make sense what he says at the end of this verse. For the earth drinks in the rain. Your problem is you're not drinking in the salvation you already have. You're not drinking in the enlightenment, the gift you already have. So immature Christians, you need to drink in what's in the heavens, the rain. You need to get more of heaven. In, you already get into heaven. You need to get more heaven into you. And by doing that, you're going to start maturing and bearing fruit, bearing herbs, and they're going to be useful and be cultivated by God in your life. 
you're going to receive the blessing from God. Again, don't get into Christian for this time. You're receiving your line to go deeper into your life. That's been the theme for the last five chapters. But when you see that there are areas you have not soaked in the gospel and you're bearing thorns and bearing uh, briars, those things are going to be rejected. And they're going to be cursed. And their end's going to be burned. God's going to burn those things up. So I want you as a Christian to so know the grace of God that it motivates you to soak in the rains of heaven just like the earth soaks in the rains from the sky. So I don't know if you're a Christian. Nobody does. And it is a good reminder when you see this kind of a warning to ask yourself, are you really in the fold? Do you really believe Jesus is the only way you get to heaven and you trusting in him and him alone to get to heaven? If you've never done that, you can do it right now. I don't even have to leave you in your prayer, just right now. Just in your heart, say, God, I'm putting my confidence in Christ to get me to heaven. Not what I do or don't do. And at that moment, you become a Christian. I believe that God saves me from my bad works that are really bad and saves me from my good works that are damnable and they're not good enough to get me to heaven. So first, make sure you're a Christian. Second, if you're a Christian who struggles with not you're in heaven, not in heaven, in heaven, not in heaven, you're in heaven. The power of love will promise grace. And may the security of who you are motivate you not just to get into heaven and live however you want, but to go because of what he did for me, because of what he's done for me. I want to please him. I want to live for him. I want to bear fruit for him. I want to stand before him at the Bema seat and I want to be rewarded for the work he did through me. Last week I mentioned a story of a couple at our church who had shared how they had moved from milk to meat coming to our church. And when I shared it at the second service, somebody started clapping over in this section. And they came up to me after the service and I said, hey, what's going on there? They said, that's exactly how I feel. Since I've been coming to Horizon, I've moved from milk to meat. Another guy came to me after the service. He said, Chad, these last five weeks of Hebrews have been so helpful to me. I want to go to lunch with you, and i got to describe the things God's been doing in me for four years, trying to break free from works righteousness and allow the gospel, even as a Christian, to sink deeper into my heart. I'm feeling the freedom that comes. I'm trying to guess if I'm in heaven, but how to live out that life. And that's my encouragement to you. What does it mean for you to bear fruit? For some of you, it might mean I've got to dig into the Bible more. I just have not gotten to the Bible. I want to use the app. I want to use my own Bible study. I need to join a group. But I've got to stop being immature. I should be a teacher by now. I've got to grow. Others of us, we have allowed bad habits in our marriage. We do not see the fruit of the Spirit in our relationships. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control. It's like I've got to get close to Jesus so his fruit will flow through my life. I've got to soak in the, rain, the rains of heaven more. And maybe you need to get closer to Jesus. Others of you, maybe it's time to serve other people. As our church continues to open up and continues to grow, we've got lots of areas of service. And maybe you're saying, listen, I've been soak, 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 take, take, take for messages. Other people have been here serving me in the parking lot, making food for me, you know, getting coffee ready for me, or, or, or putting packages together in the kids' ministry for my kids. Maybe it's time for you to grow. I'm not just an attender of Horizon, I'm a, I'm a server at Horizon. I'm a financial giver at Horizon. I'm somebody who leads a Bible study or invests in other people. The application's clear. Here's what Hebrews 6 says in general. Grow! There it is. All those views we talked about, here's what it really means. Grow! 
Move on to maturity. Soak in the grace of God and mature. Discover how great Jesus is and what it would look like if that was infiltrating every action, every word, and every thought. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this tough passage, Father, and my attempt to, uh, to untangle it. And Father, I don't know whose interpretation is for sure correct, but I know the calling on our life is the same, to grow. To grow an understanding of who you are and what you've done, and to let it flow through our lives. We thank you for this church and our commitment to the gospel and the grace of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. We'll see you all next week.